A world of pure imagination, degrowth, education, science and culture as planned by a painter, storytelling, nature, transforming the abstract energy of questions through conversation to ideas like a kind of clean combustion, discussing the best our buoyant species can be, and, well, counting the spirals on a snail shell. Beautiful, sustainable, tactile. The world is only progress if it makes its children smile. Hey everyone, welcome back to Solacine. This is the 13th week in our nature series. Yeah. And Aaron just introduced what the Solacine is. Yeah, I was thinking that sometimes I kind of make the mistake of just assuming everybody listening has listened to previous episodes. So I thought I'd kind of introduce the entire premise of the podcast and kind of summarize the four semesters that we've had as well. It's something of a prose poem, I suppose. Mm. But then I was thinking, so I ended it on like a nice note. Um, the world's only progress if it makes its children smile. Because something we often talk about is that there's a lot of claims about technology and health and life duration and economy and things like this um, kind of made to support the idea that the world has only gotten better in almost every facet. And so it's seen as kind of like, but there are these three facets at least, which could be really, really ideal. And that's what we talk about. And I was like, well, making kids smile, like that's a nice thing. But there are some things that I feel like make kids smile, which aren't so nice. Mm. So I was kind of using the, the allegory in my head all week of like candy. Because mm -hmm. candy, you know, children love it but maybe it's not the best for them. And I kind of worry because I feel like this is like a, a little bit of a rant to start this week's episode, um, just because it's been on my mind a bit. And something, some of them are topics that we've, we've talked about before, like the metaverse or AI, and especially how these kind of corporations very cynically target very young people, mm -hmm. mostly because they know that the older generations have been raised in a more like free and reasonable way i think mm -hmm. so it seems kind of like a predator predatory capitalism that's what i'll call it where it's like well we know that most people see through this as nonsense mm -hmm. but young people who don't have those capacities yet and still think that junk food is just a great thing you know we'll target them and then in 20 years it's like everybody's just gonna be playing fortnite all day mm -hmm. and that makes me really sad and you were also talking a little bit this week to me about deep fakes which is for those who luckily don't know like the the burgeoning technology of what would you call it or how would you describe it impersonating famous people or voices or even familiar voices to say something yeah. that they didn't actually say using like technology or ai mm -hmm. and something that like we always kind of gripe to each other about is well what what is the benefit of this kind of thing what is the like potential upside because all everybody ever talks about is the downsides. Mm -hmm. And it happens, you know, it's kind of a, a meme with us that people say it about social media, like, well, yeah, you know, I think it has its its drawbacks and its problems, but it's like no one ever actually talks about the good things that it does. Mm -hmm. And I feel that's the same with, with something like deepfakes. So I went on Wikipedia and looked at applications, mm -hmm. like the uses for it, because I just wondered if maybe I wasn't being imaginative enough. And the list was blackmail. Yeah. Um, political misinformation, social media, internet meme, pornography, sock puppets. And then there was a small section for like acting and art. Because sometimes mm -hmm. it's like 
Disney wants to make a Star Wars prequel, but we don't have young Harrison Ford, so we're going to, you know, kind of deep fake his face in. Mm. But I just think, and I mean, I'm a, I love movies. I love art. But I feel like that very tiny potential artistic upside is in no world, like, you know, worth it compared to the, the downsides. Yeah, I very firmly believe. But it just makes me feel sad because, like, society isn't really voting for this. It's just kind no. of being driven by... Like people who want to make apps to make you pretend yeah. like you're your grandmother or what have you. Yeah, exactly. And I see this technology as perhaps the the one that pushes us into either complete Wally people or into basically being forced to degrow and quit the internet in some capacity. Yeah. Because already there's deep fakes being circulated. So I can see within even five years, like you can't trust even yeah. if it was someone you know, like it looks like someone you know, it sounds like them, but it isn't actually. I mean, I feel like that's kind of the optimistic view. It might be mm-hmm. called like accelerationism where mm-hmm. a, a part of you kind of wants this to, to keep making the news because then people will get really turned off by it. Mm-hmm. But there's also like a part of me that's like, kids probably love this. They love mm-hmm. like watching videos of like Trump dancing or yeah. stuff or like, we felt that way with AI art and the metaverse. We, we did a whole episode about the latter. And it just makes me sad because, as I say, it's predatory and it, it targets very young people who, you know, soon mm-hmm. will be like driving voters and, and workers and buyers and things. Yeah. And right now there's a degree of intelligence you can use to say, okay, this is fake. But then younger people and often older people don't have that skepticism, that yeah. cynicism that some yeah. of us have. but in this podcast I was listening to, it was on Babbage, the Economist podcast, and they were talking about how there's certain audio fakes that you can't, like a human could not detect. They have to run in through a software which detects, it recreates the vocal track of the person that would have made that. And if it's anatomically impossible, then that means it's not real. So it's like, obviously a human couldn't discern that. And that's right now. Yeah. And therefore, since the people making this technology know that this counter technology exists. They can then try and work around it so like that it's completely impossible to detect. Yeah. So I'm hoping it doesn't happen. But like, it will though. I like, know. It just will happen. That's what annoys me. It's just like technology is kind of holding society hostage like this in ways that nobody ever like, nobody ever decided that like that wasn't a political choice that people voted for. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of happening whether you like it or not. Yeah. And most often to your children. Yeah, it's so like I, that. I think it's it's tragic. Mm-hmm. Like but, the Doctor Who episode we watched last night. Exact same thing is happening. Yeah, I don't know if we should <laughs> breach that or broach that on this on this podcast. But, um, <laughs> also, like just along the lines, a, a side point about you know the optimistic view that people kind of get turned off these technologies and the internet lifestyle in general. I found recently that using search engines. Like using Google, it's annoying. it just, it's awful. It's not a nice experience. Like no. when I was trying to do any kind of research for this episode or just in like in other endeavors, it's like, it's just not a nice or, or very easy thing. And I kind of find myself wishing, I wish I was in a library. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that feels like it happened overnight. The in, Like searching the internet becoming just this frustrating. Co- this corporate mind And everything's paid for. It's yeah. like the first six pages have just been paid to be there. SEO. Yeah. And it makes me a little bit grumpy. Because even when you're trying to buy something in real life or on the internet, it's just like, you don't have any idea what's actually the people are 
voting for. It's all just voted for with people's money and sponsorships and so on. Anyway. Thanks for coming to our TED Talk. Continuing <laughs> the, the negative vibes, though, you said you had a event that you wanted to unleash. I think I'm going to save that perhaps okay. for next week. Sure. And it can be a question. Like, the question is, what is greenwashing and how does it apply to the solar scene? Yeah, I don't for... think that's nature related, though. It's not? Okay. I thought greenwashing <laughs> no, was. No, maybe we can. Maybe we can. Um, maybe we can naturize it or something. Mm-hmm. But okay, today's two <laughs> questions are about poaching, hunting, ethics, the mm-hmm. laws, potential conflict between tradition and law, and also about the unity of materials in design. So we're going to start with the poaching question, mm-hmm. which I believe you had another soapbox. To, yeah, I was going to gonna say, if anyone's sad that I just postponed my rant, get ready for another one, because this week I learned that sealing is legal in my brain i just thought sealing was illegal yeah because of the techniques that are used to kill seals i'm gonna play devil's advocate the thing is okay so i learned about sealing in university like the whole culture and like the it's always been a point of contention it's a very canadian thing but it happens in nine other countries so i'm just going to speak about the canadian context uh because it's a very traditional indigenous practice is like the seal hunt and using seal meat as a food security tool and also a cultural tool. So it's like they use the whole seal in indigenous tradition in Canada. And I think crucial is it's necessary because mm-hmm. like, what else is up there? Exactly. They can't farm really, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it's always been a point of contention when PETA or Greenpeace was advocating against the seal hunt mm-hmm. that indigenous people were fighting back. And normally in Canadian politics and Canadian activism, Indigenous people are often on the side of the activists. Like there's tends to be a alignment with yes. traditional values and environmental values. That's true. And in this case, they were conflicting. But that's not what I'm going to rant against. It's okay. The, <laughs> this is I'm not ranting against the sustainable traditional seal hunt because that's just like. Well, obviously, mm-hmm. they're not going to like. There's not going to be millions of seals killed by a small group of people who Correct. are doing it sustainably. Yep. But there are millions of seals killed by the commercial whale hunting season in Canada, which happens from November fifteenth to May fifteenth every single year, and it's contributed to by off-season fishermen. About six thousand people partake, and it's a very big industry. And there are technically quotas against killing more than a certain number of seals yeah, for I think like it's two million total. Two million total. Don't quote me though, but I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there is a quota, but there is no fine if you go over the quota. Therefore, people often go over it, and the seal population is no longer in danger. Like in the 80s, it was endangered. Their numbers were just going down. But now because it's being kind of well enforced socially, I suppose, mm-hmm. the demand has gone down. The population is stable. But that's not the issue that I have. The issue I have is that the way that people kill seals <laughs> is by beating them. I kind of looked into this a little <laughs> bit. And I think like in 90% of cases, what happens is the seal is shot with a gun. And the club, the spiked club, a club with nails sticking out of it essentially is used to finish them off like that's what should be happening that's what they deem the most humane way of doing it because otherwise mm-hmm. it's like 
the gunshot might not kill the seal and so what i understood was that they often don't actually shoot the seals yep. because there's a two dollar thing deducted for every seal hide that, that has, has a, a bullet hole in yeah. yeah um so the humane way would definitely be mm-hmm. shoot it so right. that it is just ended but no they beat them and often when they shoot them at sea like that's a technique they can use is to shoot them if it doesn't, if they can't capture it, they're just going to let it suffer in the water. And it just seems like one of the most inhumane practices that is just not even just regulated by the government, but subsidized by the government. Yeah. And it just, like, I came to you in the kitchen, like, crying about this because it's just insane that it's legal. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm sure lots of people make money off of it. But from what I gathered of these 6,000 fishermen who partake in the commercial seal hunt, it's about one twentieth of their annual income yeah. is from this practice. So it's not exactly detrimental economically, and it probably could be replaced by some other form of industry that these people could be reallocated to. Mm-hmm. And I just think it should be illegal commercially. Similar to, I don't think we should be legally allowed to just commercially hunt deer, commercially hunt wildlife farming kind of seems slightly more ethical and sustainable in terms of how it's been more controlled yeah whereas if we were just like yeah for six months of the year you can go and catch tens of thousands of deer the deer population would suffer it would also just be probably not super well regulated because of the techniques right. people were using well deer hunting is quite regulated by the canadian government right like they yeah. have the limited number of tags and all that the hunting season and the yeah. like one doe and one mm-hmm. buck or so, something like but that. But this is private. Yeah. Like, this yes. is just like game hunting mm-hmm. kind of for for fun or for sustenance. And I think seal hunting for sustenance is 100% fine. Yeah. I guess it's subsistence hunting versus commercial right. hunting. Well, most of it, besides the Inuit, what you were talking about, like the, the fishing community, most of it is for the pelts, right? Yeah. And they just like, discard the meat to rot. Yeah. It's mostly not for the meat, which from what I can tell is not very tasty but i think they use it also for to make omega-3 pills yeah and I think oil that, that's also yeah oil like there's, um, there's an industry there i think the seal case study is very interesting and good to mention first because it kind of gets to the heart of the discussion mm-hmm. which is about ethics and it's about hunting farming sustenance for you know fashion mm-hmm. fun sport that kind of thing and i do you think that like where would you put what you describe as quite a barbaric practice mm-hmm. with the seal hunting compared to, say, factory farming? I would... I mean, seals are very specific because of the clubbing. That's what really puts me yes, over the yes. edge. I think, ethically, it is slightly... I think they're about on par. Yeah, they're, like, they're, like they're pretty much the same. They're both quite evil. Like, this, they both hurt the animal's well-being. Yeah. At least with the seals, they get to live a life of freedom until they're Yeah, killed. I mean, almost all the seals killed for the hunt... Uh, like three months old so mm. that's kind of a, a shame yeah. because it's pretty much like there's the law that you can't kill them when they have the white coat a hood, yeah but when but then as soon as they lose that they're, mm-hmm. they're free game oh my gosh i can't but yeah and i like... think i think part of it is like seals are cute mm-hmm. i do think that's an element yeah, of they're it they're super charismatic there's like a big <laughs> issue in canada as well with the minx hunt minx yeah which is also if not worse mm. at least equally unethical but they're less cute and less it's less gory a scene yes so like greenpeace has dropped their advocacy against seal hunting in favor of some more 
things are actually issues to the food chain or issues to the species. But I think we can. Yeah, there's enough people that we can advocate for all the animals. That's true. <laughs> I think the seal hunting is also a little bit of a an outlier case because, as you say, there's the the seeming brutality of the the beating. Mm-hmm. Even though I do think, like, if that just kills them quickly, sorry to get kind of uh, morbid on the podcast, but yeah. then that's obviously a good thing. Yeah, I agree with that. It's the same with like we're going to talk about hunting. I just think. Everyone can't be hunting. Right. But as it is right now, it's very regulated and it doesn't threaten the species who are being hunted in Canada. And it's like if it's humane, it's fine. But if you're capturing a deer and like torturing it, right. that's just I just unethical. don't think that happens very often. Exactly. I mean, where we come from in Nova Scotia, it was a huge, um, it was a huge hunting culture, mm-hmm. especially for deer, squirrels, uh, moose, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I would often kind of um, watch... I wasn't compelled to hunt myself, but like I'd, I had kind of a respect for it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't exactly my culture, but yeah, I thought it was kind of a cool thing. I felt that the justifications for hunting, especially for deer, I, 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 I had it kind of retread for the seals is that, well, it's population control, so we need to mm-hmm. do it. And I wanted to talk about that on, on the episode because I think that's already kind of arguing from a, a logical place that isn't I wouldn't say it's it's illogical, but it's not so seen for sure. Mm-hmm. Because the reason deer populations might go out of control if they're not hunted is because they're compressed into a tiny space because of like human habitations, mm-hmm. and also because all their natural predators have been largely like they're away, like like the the bears or like I don't know whatever kills bit uh, deers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a little bit of a of a fallacy because you should yeah. be thinking like ideally anyway. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the same with the seals. It's like, well, it actually threatens the cod industry or something yeah. like that, but that's just a lie. Like, maybe it did for one year in 1973, mm-hmm. but it's not but the, still true. But I just mean that naturally, of course, they wouldn't because naturally ecosystems yeah. have a balance. Mm-hmm. Like, they would only be seen to threaten cod populations if that was even the case because of human interventions mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah, because we want a certain amount of cod. Because we want a certain amount of space without deers or without animals so the hunting culture as a aesthetic thing in the solo scene how do you think that will translate you mean like camouflage and that um guns guns cabela's cabela's the the store yeah Yeah. (laughs) cabela's is kind of like the like the mecca for uh for hunters i think so it's the mech of hunting you could even say yeah the mech mountain equipment (laughs) like the the mech because I, I feel like every week in high school, people would kind of be excited because one, one of the people in class would be like, oh, this weekend I'm driving up to Cabela's. Yeah. And they'd like get things for other people, which is just like funny. But do I think it'll be there? Um, yeah. There's something about the neon orange and the camo, if we're just talking like solely aesthetically, <laughs> that I don't, I don't really think is that cool. Don't love. Fishing maybe a little bit more is kind of cooler. Yeah. I'm a, I think fishing will definitely be more common in the solo scene. Really? Because, one, the rivers and streams and ponds won't be polluted, so the animal yeah. populations will be, like, sustainable. Okay. People will have a knowledge of sustainable fishing practices. And then fewer plastics in the, yeah. in the waters. So right now it's like, if everyone started fishing overnight, all the fish would be gone. Yeah, similar to hunting. I mean, yeah. I think, like my like, in a very broad way, I think hunting is more ethical than factory farming certainly mm-hmm. but less sustainable yeah it's That's far less kind of, sustainable yeah. even the outlook 
for the exact numbers because this was interesting to me. Farmed animals are 60% of the world's mammal mass, is what they called it. It's like the mass of mammals on the planet. And for birds, it's even higher. It's closer to 75%. Chickens. So chickens and turkeys and ducks and so on. Farmed ducks? Yeah. Ducks on farms. Sure. But so if we wanted to meet the world's current meat consumption right hunting that would just be disastrous Mm -hmm. but in the solar scene meat demand would be down and then people's and hopefully wild populations of animals would be up so there'd be a bit more of a middle ground i don't think everyone will be out there catching their own meat no but but i I do think some more will be yeah some more and also i feel like it's almost it should almost be kind of a not a necessary thing, obviously, but a more common thing that people do it at least once in their life. Yeah. They're like, you kill an animal to mm-hmm. eat it if you want to be an animal eater. Yeah. Maybe when you're 18, you have to choose if you're going to be vegetarian or if you're going to be <laughs> like a divergent herbivore. Yeah. You have to like or... cut their hand and bleed into the bowl mm-hmm. with the meat or the bowl with the, the herbs. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have to choose. And if you choose the meat, then you have to go out on a hunt. Right. And if you choose um, the herbs, then then you don't have to do anything. You can sit home and eat your lettuce all you want. Yeah. Maybe you have to work on a a lettuce farm or something. Okay. <laughs> but you could also be a pescatarian. You could fish. There's so many options for diets. But there's, I think the diversity of diets will continue, but perhaps the people, like the meat eaters, will definitely be less all-consuming when it comes to the animals. They'll I think they'll moderation. be more all-consuming. They'll, they'll eat more of the... Oh. They'll consume more of the animal. They will. So there you a, go. What do you mean? I just meant they'd eat less meat overall. We'll see. <laughs> Poaching. I kind of didn't have much notes for this because it's like bad in the solo <laughs> scene. But what I was kind of curious about was why does poaching happen? Mm-hmm. Which species are poached? And I heard about the pangolin, which I did not know about, but is apparently like the most trafficked mammal. Mm. They're and, weird animals. Yeah, they're the ways they're the ones that like inspired that Pokemon. I don't remember which one, but they're kind of scaly, mm-hmm. hard, aardvark looking, coily looking mammals. Yeah. But people don't really know about them, like they know about the rhinos and the elephants, the poaching problem. But I had the stat, it's like as of twenty nineteen, one hundred and ninety five thousand pangolins were trafficked in twenty nineteen for just for their scales. And four of the eight species of pangolins are critically endangered. And part of it is the scales, like they use it to make boots and clothes and stuff. But also, much like the the ivory, they're viewed as having like mystical, mythical, medicinal powers. I which see. Which is obviously not a good... Believe. Not, not doing well. <laughs> yeah. I was blown away at how much poaching still happens. And also that only six countries in the world regulate poaching. Or have a commission to track it, sort of. And like, have an idea of how much is going on. And... Yeah. One of those is India and the other five are on Africa. Poaching, it just makes me sad though. I mean, I kind of, I don't think we can add much more to the conversation as a thing because our solar scene, like the selling point is like, we're imagining this thing, but like, it doesn't take much to imagine. How the solution to poaching is just no poaching. Don't poach. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like, as of 20, uh, the stat I had as of 2015, 30,000 elephants were killed each year. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And it's like jewelry carvings with the ivory and again like the the medicine thing it's like mystical properties yeah especially in in china Mm -hmm. and i think vietnam but it's like 
even if that's a key part of the culture, it's not. It's not sustainable. Yeah, shouldn't do it. Sometimes you have to make compromises, I think. There was this quote that said, the earth is large enough for all to share, but mankind's heart is not large enough to care. That's such a mum quote, but I like it. Yeah. I also had a mum quote for later on, so we'll be equal in that there's 100 million sharks killed every year. Oh. Poor sharks. And whaling has been outlawed since the 80s as well, similar to sealing. And whales basically drove the industrial revolution like whale oil was used for kerosene lamps and so on yeah so it was like a really really big driver for what we have for all this for all this lovely things yeah and but then we realized oh 90 percent of the blue whales are just gone and then they were endangered and so the international whaling commission was formed and they said okay no more whaling but then slowly countries started to kind of drop out all over the place like it's not just concentrated to one area like all over the world countries are dropping out or protesting the commission or finding ways around it like there's places that will do research ships and they'll say we need to catch a whale for research to see how much plastics in its belly or whatever but obviously they won't just do that they'll catch more than they need and yeah it's kind of a shame like I think the basic way you can describe all this history of poaching and hunting is the tragedy of the commons, right? Like, exactly. It's fine when the earth only has X amount of people, but since we've grown to Y amount of people, these practices, which were maybe kind of benign, if a little mm-hmm. bit inhumane, um, with regards to we want to do this for medicine, even if it's a bit pseudoscience, or we want to get this for fur, even though it's a little bit unnecessary, mm-hmm. now it's just outright like, bad mm-hmm. and, and, and unsustainable. Yeah. Speaking of outright bad and unsustainable, the organism of the week for this week might be familiar to you, Alicia. Ta-da! The sea anemone? Yep, it's a specific species of the sea anemone. I realize my drawing kind of looks like a rubber, glo- a rubber glove. It does look like an orange glove. Um, yeah, I kind of colored it in as orange. It's more of a pinky color, even though there is some variety. It's the northern red anemone, or the... Etrosina felina. And we saw this yesterday. We did. Because we went to the Montreal Biodome, which was a very fun, cool rainforest, St. Lawrence River, penguin having exhibit thing, <laughs> potentially unethical in some areas, but we'll disregard that because we really like starfish and invertebrates. Yeah. And capybaras. Actually it sounds more unethical the way I say it, but yeah, that was um that was there. That was there, and we were kind of walking around and spotting everything and saying, like, hey, there's like at least two different organisms of the week here. Yeah. So I thought now there's another one because I just made one of them an <laughs> organism of the week. And my favorite part was like the rocky tidal pool, mm-hmm. cave, starfish, anemone, that one creepy fish that was just staring at us mm-hmm. from underneath this little cave with the with the bright white eyes. Um that was my favorite part. The Northern red anemone is found in the North Pacific, in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, like I said, and in the North Atlantic. They're animals. I didn't, for some reason, I didn't know that. I just kind of They give off plant vibes. They give off plant vibes a lot, but they have a stomach. Mm -hmm. So uh, their lifespan is approximately 60 to 80 years. Wow. Yeah. They're hermaphrodites, so they start male, become female. They can also reproduce asexually. So it's like this base of it is called the foot. When it moves, part of this kind of can break off. You've shown me the video of them jumping. Yeah. Scary. Yeah, but what I'm saying is it's like budding. Parts of it can break off and then 
just becomes an identical creepy uh, cool yeah. creepy cool yeah because it can do both ways yeah when it reproduces sexually it says the males i guess the younger ones just kind of release their sperm mm-hmm. out into the currents the females kind of release their over out into the currents and then it just hopefully happens find each where other. it happens so maybe that's a solo scene way of reproduction i don't know i think it's cool <laughs> um what else they're, they're tentacles on the top these are a defense mechanism and also the way of getting prey because they can eject little darts of stinging cells mm-hmm. which paralyze like fish and stuff yeah. and then they get swallowed through the mouth slash anus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my cousins had a sea anemone in their aquarium. What? And you could feed it lettuce, I think. Oh, man. Like it was really weird, but they're like, don't touch it, it'll sting you. So they seem cool. so, they just seem like a plant, like you said. Yeah. And also, I want hundreds. Mm, I see. The collector. <laughs> I just want some. <laughs> Gotta catch them all. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question for anyone listening who goes to Dalhousie. Tell me if the title Touchpool is still in the Life Science Building. I'm curious if anyone can go track that down and tell me because I missed that little pond. There was a pond at our university you could go and just like yeah. touch the things in. We used to hang around there a weird amount. Yeah, we were we probably visited it like several times yeah. a week. <laughs> Um, but it's cool, and I wonder if it still exists, because it seems like the kind of thing that would be shut down during the pandemic yeah, or something like that. Just but. that lingering scent in there. Oh, yeah. It always smelled like like sludge. Yeah. But it, it's kind of cool. A little ecosystem you could touch. <laughs> Tell me about what you're wearing, Aaron. Describe to the listeners uh, this four-part special. Okay. White socks, brown okay. Uh, trousers. What would you call them? I don't know. Trousers. And, and a white uh, polo shirt. Hmm. It's a three-part. Yeah. And underwear, I'd, I suppose. But Yes, I guess we don't need to talk about no. that. But what are they made of? Do you know? Cotton. Mm-hmm. Cotton and probably a, a cotton polyester brand. On the old socks. Yeah, on the pants, no. Oh, I see. Yeah. So the reason I ask is the next question is about mixing fabrics. Yeah. Mixing materials and how that will be approached in the solo scene. I've had my mind slightly shifted on this one, hmm. but I think it's an interesting conversation nonetheless. That's what I think also. It's like, this isn't really prescriptive about just describing, this is how the solo scene will be. I just thought it would be a cool thing to mm-hmm. to discuss, say, both sides of. So, I want to start with the biodome. Okay. Because the way we walked around there, how was it like laid out? By region? Yeah, by region. So, there was a, an Arctic place, there was a two different forest places, like a, a rainforest and more of a, a northern one and a little river place. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it was nice how they were all in their own places and some zoos, it's like, you have this next to this and it just doesn't make sense. This one was like walking into an ecosystem and it felt natural and whole, even though obviously mm-hmm. it was a very artificial place, but it was a lot more natural than had you had the sea anemones right beside the capybaras, right beside the penguins. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel like that's kind of a, it's a biomimicry with our design where we can emulate that cohesion a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think what makes humans humans is that we are able to bring together different materials or different species from different places and kind of still make them look aesthetically appealing. However, ethically or like aesthetically, I think it might be, we've definitely brought it too far. Like okay. in one piece of furniture, the wood's probably from one side of the world. The metal fixtures have been imported and then it was assembled in this country and then sold in this country. So yes. it's like 
a bit too crazy. And the reason what I was thinking of in the solo scene is that it's fine if something is assembled from wood from a few different places, but I think the fewer elements to a an electronic to a garment, the easier it is for you to fix it mm-hmm. or for you to find replacements. Um, like Patagonia makes those jumpers that have the pocket and the reason it's a different color is so that you can just kind of replace it with whatever fabric. You don't have to go to them and get like a specific one. And I think to an extent that fixability is very, very important and almost integral to the Solocene ethos of just like degrowth, I suppose. Yeah. And that's best described by just simplicity. So it's like your whole shirt is cotton. You can then replace the sleeve with another cotton. It doesn't have to be exactly from that manufacturer. Like Lululemon, they have like a patent on their fabric. So you're not going to be able to get it unless you go back to the company. Mm-hmm. And obviously you can't open up an iPhone very easily. Yeah. You can't. And if you need a replacement headphones like I do, you have to go to Apple. You can't just like get it from wherever, let alone locally. Yeah, but that's just how things used to be, though, right? Yeah. Like, I was thinking about um, online shopping and just travel, because I feel like more people travel now and get souvenirs than ever before. So, our houses are kind of like this mosaic or like this collage of different websites or different countries and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, I, like, the thing is, I didn't want to say, like, this is just bad, because it's kind of cool. I mean, we did it when we went to France. We were like, really like this little farm uh, wall knitted thing. Mm-hmm. So, we got that. And it's like, that's something very not local. So I didn't want to just say like one is good, one is bad. It's just yeah. something like you talked about, generally speaking, the fewer components and maybe the the more um, compact the sourcing of those components. I think that's kind of a design principle that we can sometimes aspire to mm-hmm. as like, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I was thinking also about like Animal Crossing and how every villager has their thing. So it's like there's one of them that's like a jock and then you go into their tiny house and it's just all full of weights and it doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. Or like one of them is into writing and so it's just stacks of paper and pencils and stuff. Or like brands, branding, right, with with outfits. Some people say you shouldn't mix like Puma and Under Armour or something because that kind of looks bad on an outfit. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't think that the the Ultra Animal Crossing cohesion is is necessarily great. But I also feel like there's something to be said for the simplicity of it. Simplicity is the word for it. I think when we're trying to think about design, it's just easier. It's like if you are wearing all one color even, it's just like that'll look good on anyone. And it will just be easier for your brain to pick out. Right now, It's tempting now because we have everything available to us. mm -hmm. Like in the past, for most people, like let's say you're building a house. It isn't an option to get your wood from imported from two countries over mm-hmm. everything had to be local and what this resulted in is like a town or a street where almost every home looks the same mm-hmm. and people like theoretically you might say that's monotonous mm-hmm. but everybody loves paris because there's such a consistency in the the homes and everything and we would always bemoan or often bemoan on our old campus shout out our housey again the <laughs> fact that it just looks like every building was built from a different era using different materials mm-hmm. because it was yeah and it, it didn't look great <laughs> great no. i think also we have to combat the paralysis of choice and the anxiety that comes with so much choice constantly bombarding us the internet exacerbates it but even if there was no internet for a year you would still have so many choices you're like 
like we're buying a table. We look at 10 different thrift stores, every online outlet, yes. Facebook marketplace. You look everywhere trying to find the perfect table. Right. But it's like if you just had one option of one store. You'd, then be, you'd be happier and it would be quicker. It would just be quicker. And you'd be like, well, whatever. It's $10 more. Like maybe I lost $10 on a deal, but at least we have a table now instead of putting it off for six months or whatever. Yeah. And I think also when it comes to food, it's the age old gripe of mums and people really everywhere of what are we going to have for dinner tonight because you could literally have anything in the world you go to the grocery store you get yes, yes. whatever cuisine you want and you make it and if we didn't have that option if you kind of had to eat a bit more in the season or chose to set that limitation for yourself it's like okay there's these five root vegetables in season mm -hmm. two types of onions and one meat that we maybe have in the freezer in preserves and then it's just easy and you just kind of eat it might get a little boring but then the fun thing is at the turn of the season whole new set of ingredients yeah. and so on and you get much more excited about the the apples coming mm -hmm. yeah i agree i mean i think hopefully people kind of get the vibe that we're trying to get across because it's not exactly nature specific and it is a lot more aesthetic than than ethical or sustainable mm -hmm. but yeah, it's just this thing like you walk out into a field and everything's where it should be because everything's where it came from Something like that. Yeah. I wanted to talk next week about tree rings. I don't know how exactly this will apply to the Solacene. Okay. But I'm finishing up. We're finally having a Solacene book club finale of the overstory. And there was this whole section about uh, a really old tree being cut down that a man's sitting and like labeling all the rings and saying mm -hmm. this is the year that this happened and this okay. is the year. Um, this tree was founded or America was founded like the trees older than that so I think talking about tree rings is a fun idea or maybe even just tree biology trees. because it's really fun and cool trees trees and here's my mom quote for this question it says when we're shopping we see our own hopes and dreams reflected back at us not immense raw material with usage exploitative labor conditions and sprawling greenhouse gas emissions clothes in the hype era and products to own, their moments to broadcast, to share on Instagram for 24 hours, more like memes than products. I know it's really long. Was that a mum quote? It's a quote from the Future Earth blog, podcast. Okay. But it's kind of a mum, it's just kind of a quote that I found. It was <laughs> displayed in a very mum way with like a picture of someone. With sure, and cursive. Yeah. Um, but I just think that's what our, we surround ourselves with. We like reflect a lot on them. But if you just kind of see them for what they are, like a spoon, it's like at the end of the day, it's a spoon. Like it, you have to see it a bit utilitarian, I think, and also see it for like the natural material that it is. Because we say, oh, that's a cool outfit, but it's like, it's literally cotton from a field. Like trying yes, to kind of yes. see both the item for what it is, but also for like where it came from. And I think this is how it connects to nature is like how we can connect like literally everything we're surrounded with came from nature yes. even plastic and so it's like yeah remembering that, that there's kind of a, a cool transparency to that type of minimalism i know people often rag on the grage mm -hmm. the grage aesthetic of sustainability fashion let's say where everything's just kind of undyed mm -hmm. but it's that for a reason because it it doesn't hide what it is or where it came from mm -hmm. and that's kind of kind of nice in a way kind of refreshing certainly yeah to, yeah. Cel to celebrate it's its roots let's say certainly and i always on the podcast have referenced the biblical once or twice mention of not mixing fabrics and so i wanted to finally look into it because 
it's not exactly practiced of not mixing fabrics. So I was kind of curious of like why it was in a religious text. And this isn't the only one. Like across cultures and religions, there's things about like there's feng shui, the five elements and having the five different elements represented through the materials in your home. But I was curious about the biblical example because I was always think about it and like quote it in a funny way. In Leviticus, right? Yeah, it's in Leviticus and then again in Deuteronomy. And it basically says not to mix linen and wool or anything that kind of resembles linen and wool for fear of being mistaken that you have broken the law. But I looked into like why and there's a few different schools of thought. One is that it perhaps was reserved for people in positions of power, but also really practically it creates a really heating effect. And obviously the people who were being told this message lived in a very hot climate. Yes. So it was just kind of funny because I always thought it was like some kind of aesthetic Yeah, so did I. I thought, judgment. It, was like, <laughs> I thought it was like an outfit rule, but in fact, it refers to one garment, right? Yeah. It's like, don't blend these. Don't do 50% mm-hmm. linen, 50% cotton in a shirt. Yeah. I, it doesn't matter if you want to do linen pants, cotton shirt. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, I just wanted to clarify that because it was kind of funny to so me. So maybe we, we've been misquoting. Yeah, like, <laughs> we probably <laughs> have been. But I do think there's still some merit to thinking like that of like, thinking about the materials that are in your clothes and being intentional about it. How do you think this guy would feel to touch? The sea anemone? Yes. He would probably feel like jello. That's my guess. 